This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Where'd you come from? Where'd you grow up? My parents were missionaries. I grew up in Venezuela in the Amazon working with tribes and my dad was a medical missionary that would do rural clinics on the Amazon. So we would go out and as a family do these clinics where, you know, these tribes people would hear their doctors coming in. So they would hike in for miles if they had some disease or something that they thought a doctor might be able to help. We would do the clinics. I was a lot of times, even as a young kid, the pharmacist, quote unquote, which just meant that I would get an order, a little slip of paper someone would bring me that would I would count pills and put them into a plastic bag and then hand them to someone. So that was a big part of my childhood and grew up kind of isolated, as you might imagine, with my family and these tribes. And so music was something that we did as a family. And mm. my dad's parents, they died before I was born, but they were both music teachers. He was a really great pianist and would play and we would sing as a family and harmonize on these long road trips and hikes. And that's where my love of music began. And also I think the way I think about life is very mission oriented. My parents were missionaries and to them, you sacrifice every comfort in life in service of the mission. I think, you know, looking back on it now, that's how I see life as well, even though my particular expression of mission is different from what they were doing. What was the first music that kind of caught your attention, rang your bell? I didn't really hear non-Christian music until I was basically a teenager. Not because my parents were especially strict. They only listened to Christian music, and I didn't really have an occasion to hear other music. My dad would make up songs with Bible verses mm. when we were kids, and so I, I learned all those. And I loved singing, and then, I mean, the, fir the first music that I really liked when I kind of could see outside of that was not good music. It was just kind of mm. top 40 radio stuff when my family eventually moved to the U.S. Mm. But I was just captivated by music and its emotional potential and started to get really deep. And then, you know, as a young teenager, like most teenage American guys, got into classic rock mm. and went into a deep hole. Uh, I remember I would come home after school in middle school and I went to allmusic.com. Someone told me that that's how you learned mm. about where good music was. So I would go read the lists of all their top albums, just like inhale these reviews of music that had been really influential and then go and illegally download all the albums and <laughs> then just listen to them over and over again. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was completely obsessed. I would just listen to the same song hundreds of times and just try to internalize the music. Uh, I guess after that, I decided it's what I had to do. There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him and everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around now first he sings and then he goes and what it means it's hard to know from harbor media you're listening to cultivated conversations about faith and work my guest today is Jonathan Seal, a record producer and one of the founders of the creative collective known as Mason Jar Music. 
He's worked with people like Josh Gerrels, Fleet Foxes, Feist, and more. And we'll talk about the how and why of what he does, including how it's shaped by his faith. So stay with us. What instrument did you start off first learning to play? I consider myself first and foremost a singer, and that's definitely what I started out playing. Then as a kid, I took piano lessons, classical. I really failed at that because I was always making up my own songs, and Mm. I I would fake learning how to read the music. When my teacher played Bach or something, I would just listen, memorize it really quick, Mm. and then mime as if I was reading it because I was embarrassed to show that I Mm. hadn't learned how to read. But what I was really interested in was making up my own songs. And I remember the first little song that I wrote I was probably seven or something. I, I wrote a oh, song wow. called Indian Summer <laughs> on the <laughs> piano. That was my first piece. I moved to Manhattan to study uh, record production, which was what I wanted to do at NYU. At the time, it was one of two programs like it where you can learn how to be a record producer and get an undergrad degree at the same time. So that was my goal. I studied there at the Clive Davis Institute for Recorded Music. When I moved to the U.S., I was really bitter and I hated America. Mm. And, you know, I'd grown up around all this poverty and disease and I had all these really deep existential questions about the problem of evil, even Mm. as like an 11-year-old, that I feel like a lot of my American peers had never dealt with. So when I moved to the U.S. What year was that? 2000. You know, I moved to an affluent community where people were largely unconcerned with the rest of the world. And, Mm. you know, looking back on it now, it's hard to blame them. But at the time, I certainly did. And American culture in general, I was like, this is a culture of opulence and greed. And, (laughs) you know, I just imagine a 12 year old saying all these things. Uh, And I was just so bitter. I think a lot of it was about having to move at a pivotal time in my life. But it was really American music that helped me to love and forgive America, (laughs) especially Southern music and traditional American music, all the incredible traditions of music that Mm. came from America. Um, Like the blues, Appalachian Blues, jazz, yeah, bluegrass, country, you know, hip hop. Mm -hmm. There's so many incredible, you know, America's for one reason or another been an incubator for some of the greatest musical traditions, I think, of history. So at least the ones that we've preserved and and are still aware of. So that was kind of like my inroad into finding my own expression of what being an American was. Why record production rather than, you know, if you said you're a singer, like why not be an artist? Why not pursue that? For a long time, I thought I did want to be an artist and start a band. I had bands all through high school and although they didn't gain much traction in my small town, I did want to pursue it. But I had a moment where... There was a a particular artist who I won't name who I had really loved this guy's albums and listened to them again, like memorized them completely, internalized all the musical decisions that they made. Mm. And then one day someone lent me a, a live concert DVD of this guy's music and I watched it and I was like this is horrible this guy <laughs> this guy sucks this guy's terrible and then I I started I had this kind of crisis and I was like who who have I been liking all this time if I love these records wh- mm. whose work have I been liking and then I 
started to realize it was the producer's work that had really mm. taken this mediocre artist and made his music into a satisfying experience that had mm. touched me emotionally. Yeah. And can you and, say who the producer was? You know, I don't want to name give any away names. too much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, it, it might be too easy to figure out. And uh, you know, in my line of work, I, I like to only make friends, no yeah. enemies. So no, that makes sense. So I realized, man, it's the producer's work after all that mm. that I loved. And in addition to that, there are some practical concerns just about a producer's career. Typically, can have a lot more longevity than an artist. Not always, of course, mm. but. It was something that I felt might be a more practical decision. What kind of led you out of the crisis of faith experience? Man, I, I feel like my whole journey is just punctuated by crises of faith. But I think God is faithful. And every time I have this idea like, oh, I'm really going to distance myself from Christian culture or the church or God, it's really impossible. Like God has a way of bringing me back. I moved to New York, not as a rebellious act, but I did feel like it was a nice byproduct that I would not have to be faced with Christian culture because when I moved to the U.S. in 2000, I moved into a community in the South that was nominally Christian and culturally Christian. There was a lot of people who, in my eyes, professed the faith, but you know, it didn't seem to have any measurable impact on their lives. And I was like so embittered by that. So I was like, man, I'll go to New York, get away from Christian culture, and then finally get have some kind of refreshing experience or get get that taste out of my mouth. Yeah. And that's not how, how it happened at all. I went to a, a gigantic school that, if anything, is kind of anti-religious. The first week I was against my will introduced to a whole community of Christians that transformed my perception of what it meant to be a Christian. And mm. even where I had come from, being a Christian meant only that you went to church and you... My, my parents are not like this, but in the Southern community that I was a part of, I felt sometimes like what being a Christian meant was that you go to church and you pray before meals and before bed mm. and try to be a nice person. And that was just a very uncompelling lifestyle for me. But, you know, when I moved to New York, even though I wanted to meet no Christians, I immediately met some at NYU that were really smart and engaged culturally, who saw their work as a way to express their faith, Mm. and and who weren't afraid to engage questions about about what made their faith relevant or real or historical or mm. any of those things. And uh, so, you know, I, I was introduced to a whole new framework of, of how to see my faith that of people who really, I guess, were more mission oriented in the way that I had grown up with it originally. And that was a more compelling vision for me. Yeah. You might say like it gave plausibility to the idea of faith being like what you'd experienced when you were a kid, right? Yeah. Like that it was possible in, in the States, you know, in, in our culture. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of putting it. And to use like a theological term, I'm much more drawn to the exilic expressions of faith, or in other words, like people who are forced to define their faith in exile mm-hmm. rather than in a place where dominant culture validates and confirms it. Because to me, that made it much more urgent and real and worth pursuing.
bridge the gap for me between between college and and Mason Jar? Like, what happens in the next few years? Well, while I was still in college, I met um, a community of artists through school. Most of them also went to NYU, although some didn't. Of filmmakers and musicians and <clears throat> photographers who were just really whose art compelled me, and I decided I really want and need to collaborate with these people. And when I moved to NYU, for the first time, I felt like I found my tribe, you know, because I grew up around tribes. And yet I felt like an outsider, obviously, because I didn't have the same cultural background. You know, they gave me a, a tribal name. My my name was Son of the Clouds mm. because my hair was white and they had never seen someone with such when you were light colored hair. Yeah, this is when I was a kid. And... Uh, <laughs> I was, for a moment, I thought you were talking about NYU. No, was, that would be interesting. <laughs> um, no, no, this is when I was a kid. And so, you know, I, I grew up with these tribes and yet I was like, I'm not Yukpa, which was the tribe that my parents worked with mostly. And I'm not, I don't feel American because uh, I was born there, but I didn't grow up there. I didn't have any cultural experience or framework. And I wanted to find my tribe because I had seen all these beautiful expressions of community mm. and I wanted that. But I didn't really feel like I found it until I came to New York. Mm. And, you know, NYU was full of other people who felt culturally displaced or you know, they came from mixed cultural backgrounds. So that was one thing that united us citizens of the world, really. And, and the second thing was that most people who moved to New York City, and especially at that age, were people who were mission-driven. Even though most of them aren't necessarily Christians, they do move to the big city with some vision yeah. for their life that includes, you know, changing things or making an impact or, you know, maybe it's just making a name for themselves professionally. But yeah. either way, it's different than what what I perceived as, as the motivating factor for a lot of people that I came into contact with in previous places in my life, which was just the pursuit of comfort. And I knew that I didn't want my life to be defined by that. So anyway, at the risk of sounding self-righteous, I identified more with this community of artists that I met in New York. And mm. so when I was in college, part of our, our program at the Clive Davis Institute, our thesis project was to create some sort of business that we could pursue once we graduated because music industry had just collapsed. And I think our professors were feeling like, oh my God, we're so guilty that we're, we're <laughs> charging these kids an incredible amount of money to educate them in a field where they'll likely never find employment. Right. So they encouraged us and trained us to think entrepreneurially about our music. And mm -hmm. for me... I took a class on Motown and I really loved their expression of entrepreneurship and music in Detroit. So we, we created a music collective and business that we felt captured some of the things we loved about Motown. Mm. And I recruited all these artists who I'd been working with to be a part of it. A big part of it was creating this house where a lot of us could live affordably and make music together. Mm. And so that's what we pursued while I was still going into my senior year of college. We found a Mason Jar Music with that ethos. And now, I guess seven years later or so, I'm still here, still working mm. on it. There's a lot of people who have helped along the way. Co-founder Dan Nobler, who's now in Nashville, mm. was kind of a co-pioneer of the vision with me. I'd love to hear you kind of draw out the parallel for me in terms of 
What was it that drew you to Motown in particular? Was it the kind of the sense of community and the fact that you kind of had this family of musicians that was pl- they were all playing on the, on the records and playing on each other's records? Yeah, that was certainly a big part of it. I mean, we were drawn to a lot of things about it, but including the fact that they were a scrappy operation and mm-hmm. that's how we really saw ourselves as well. Mm-hmm. You know, they were, they were up against these monolithic recording companies and record companies that previous to that, there there wasn't really a way to just make music and put it out. They were really the first self-starters that flew in the face of these giant companies that had previously had a monopoly on the way music was made and distributed. That was one thing we identified with about it. You know, their recording studio was just an old house that they Mm. bought and kind of put together by hand and then recruited all their community of musicians to come and be a part of it. And through that, they created a really compelling vision that not only created good music, but it also created opportunity for a lot of racial harmony and for Americans to engage with black music in a way that they hadn't before. Socially, I think the impact that they had was incredible as well. They really had the hard version, which is they had no roadmap, nothing to look back on, but just a vision for music that they wanted to create. So the idea of Mason Jar Music was largely bred just out of practical concerns in addition to creative ones. And I think if my career is built on any idea, it's the idea that we're much better off thinking of ourselves always as collaborators first Mm. rather than competitors. So kind of the idea of banding together, a lot of people have compared the current climate of the music industry to be kind of like the Wild West. Mm. Only the ones with the pioneer spirit will survive. You know, not that what we've done is anything new, but I think in any period of economic hardship, the economy shifts. In our case, we're largely in kind of a gift economy where exchanges and barters help what make a life possible. Creating that gift economy with the community of artists in New York Hmm. has been part of what makes our operation practical and sustainable. Side note, have you read The Gift by Lewis Hyde? No, I haven't. And you say gift economy. You should check that book out. That's what the whole book is about. Like he exchange economies versus gift economies. And he goes way, way back into kind of the tribal origins of gift economies and and then how the Reformation kind of you can blame the Reformation on the shift from bartering economies to exchange economies. And mm. anyway. Sounds good. Yeah. He's I, a poet. And I so probably shouldn't say the word gift economy without reading that book anymore. No, I feel no, like no, I'm no, probably no. using it you're wrong. Using it, no, no, you're using it perfectly. His whole purpose in the book is it's about how, how do artists understand their work? Should they understand that as I'm going to put this out in the world in exchange for, you know, put, put value on it and all this. And he argues he's not coming from a particularly Christian or even religious perspective, but he basically says there's something to, you know, there's something to this thing where if the work of an artist becomes about exchange, like I've got to do these things so that I can make this money and do this, somehow it destroys, you know, he talks about artistic gifts, like we're given these artistic gifts. And if we turn them into something that's meant just for pure exchange, it ends up destroying the gift or using it up. That's another way he talks about it. And so the, the goal of the artist is to sort of cultivate and sustain this sense of art, their work is, I've been gifted with this thing, I want to gift it to the world, and whatever comes back to me is fine. But it's not fundamentally about that exchange. Yeah, I believe that. You 
you talk about, like in the descriptions in the mason jar stuff that I've seen, like you talk about this analog principles for a digital world. Describe what you mean by that. Well, I just changed the website to use the description for that that's a little more fleshed out so that people can have an idea. But analog principles in digital world, what does it mean? Well, for us, analog principles is kind of a metaphor. We do record using analog techniques. So it's kind of about that, but it's also kind of using the idea as a broader comparison. But I guess the concept is that we want to see our work as craftsmanship. And it's possible to use and abuse digital tools to replace some of that craftsmanship and kind of mechanize or mask what I think is beautiful about humans and human performance, human creation, which often includes imperfections that get completely bulldozed by the way our technology works. Yeah, maybe describe that a little bit. I mean, an obvious example that everyone is familiar with is auto-tune. Not that I don't think auto-tune can be used as an artistic tool. Obviously, there are people doing it well. I think everyone's familiar with, maybe not. I think there are a lot of people who, when they realize that a singer that they like can't actually sing and that their voice is being changed, manipulated in such a way to make them appear more talented than they are or just more accurate than they are, there's like a certain level of, a feeling of deception that people feel and and you know these things happen in microcosmic ways that we are not as aware of as you know being able to watch a live performance of someone like again I won't name any names here but there have been several times recently where people have watched live performances that have revealed that the musicians who are performing don't actually have the capacity to sing mm-hmm. in the way that they appear to Now, in microwaves, it happens all the time. And one expression of that that may make the analog idea make sense is that when music is transferred, so a little quick music lesson here, music starts as audio waves, vibrations in the air. Our voice, for instance, creates vibrations that push airwaves outward. Microphone turns that into electromagnetic pulse. That pulse contains the same nuances of something like a voice and transfers them down a wire to a recording device. In an analog world, there are analog recording devices that capture that pulse and all its nuances. And, you know, recording nerds love to talk about tape and vinyl because those are two mediums where the continuous information is captured in a way that a lot of people feel like has has veracity. It's 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 true. But in a digital world, that information is abbreviated to be ones and zeros that are essentially like, it's kind of a, an abbreviation, I guess, is a good metaphor for the music. So rather than a curve, for instance, you get points that straight lines are drawn to. And we're kind of in abstract territory now, but... <laughs> no, you did a great job. Uh, but essentially, you're taking what was a lot of beautiful information that kind of captured as I said, what I feel like is a beautiful expression of the human condition and you're making it into a summary. And so I guess I'm just not as drawn to that. Not to say that digital music is bad or it can't be used artistically, but I just love humans and I love Mm. what they can create and the expressions that they're capable of. And a lot of times I feel like technology gets uh, is used to mask or mechanize or abbreviate Mm -hmm. those qualities that I love so much. Yeah, I mean, the tools have gotten so good that, like you said, like an artist who actually can't play can be made to play well by the way things get edited. You know, you move things around and all of a sudden everything's aligned and it sounds good. 
I saw this great interview with Bonnie Raitt a few years ago. She was talking to the interviewer and she said this joke. She said, you know, what did the Pro Tools engineer say to the session musicians? Hey, that really sucked. Come on in. We're done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, man. I was in Nashville working on a record recently uh, with this old country star. And uh, the program that we use, the industry standard computer program for recording is called Pro Tools. And um, he was like, hey, you know what we had before Pro Tools? And I was like, what? What's that? And he's like, pros. I was like, yeah, okay. Point taken, point taken. Knowing where you come from as a Christian, as I was reading some of that language, this idea of like love of the human, love of the the sort of the real, like there's kind of like an interesting respect for creation, respect for the image of God, respect for humanity and kind of its glories and its imperfections. Does your faith kind of inform that aesthetic? Yeah, I certainly think it does. I don't want to suggest in a Luddite fashion that (laughs) technology isn't also an expression of God's ultimate vision for the world, because I think it can be. And so, yeah, I definitely don't want to set up any kind of dichotomy that shouldn't be there. However, I do think it's an expression of my faith in a way. You know, I use this, this term, the human condition. I feel like what music can do best and what it's done for me in my lifetime has been to help me know that I'm not alone. In a world where I felt isolated growing up, music showed me that there were other people out there that identified with the same things that I was going through, the same, you know, whether it was my teenage angst or uh, loneliness or just this vision for a better world, anything that I, I felt like I had a hard time finding through my peers I had this other avenue where I could know and understand that others shared shared that. And, you know, good songwriters are able to capture the human condition in such an incredible way and put into words and melodies things that we resonate with and that we know are true. And I feel like there's a way that producers can share in that lineage and capture that as well. And that's what I hope to do. I feel like any insight that we can get into the human condition through music is also an insight about God that we can understand. Understanding our own nature is understanding something about what God placed in us. And so in that way, I do feel like it's an expression of my faith. Tell me about this place. Where are we? What happens here? So you're sitting in the studio. You're in Brooklyn in a four-story brownstone in a building that we've only been renting now since June, which is, I guess, eight months now, something like that. As I said, you know, part of what we were inspired by with Motown was a community of artists and entrepreneurs banding together and creating a practical reality for themselves. Seven years ago, when we started Mason Jar Music, A big part of that was finding a house where we could have a communal living situation that made our life in New York practical. So that's what we searched for and found. We were living in an all Hasidic Jewish neighborhood at the time for about six years where we Mm. had our first studio and then populated the house with artists of different disciplines that were interested in living a creative, collaborative lifestyle. And now, seven years later, I'm married. I'm still doing it. We live in a different house now. It's different considerations. But this vision of communal life has still kind of captured our imagination. So we're still pursuing that. And although it's atypical for a married couple, and you know the house actually has three couples mm. who live here, I think it's been a really healthy way for us to live in community and express our art. And it makes our life practical as well. We have recording studio here on the street level and then three residential floors. So that's where you are, man. And I think it's a strange life, but it's a good one. 
Describe some of the benefits of it in terms of living in community with one another. How does it benefit the kind of spirit of creativity or however you define that? Yeah, well, there's a lot to it. I mean, practically, it's less expensive, which in a city like New York, which is maybe the second highest, most expensive city in the country after San Francisco. That's not a real stat. That's my <laughs> that's my conjecture. Um, it makes it possible. So that's yeah. one thing, and it makes it so that we can have a, uh, what I consider to be a comfortable lifestyle, but also be pursuant of our creative passions in a way that doesn't compromise our work because we have a lifestyle that's inexpensive enough that we can choose to not be gigging all the time, scrounging for money. Right. So that's, that's one thing, maybe not the most inspiring thing I could say. When I moved to New York, I was introduced to a community of Christians who put a, a big premium on community and, and the benefits of community and and a pastor, John Tyson, who influenced me a lot, used to talk a lot about expressions of community that have been really fruitful. And, you know, in the Christian world, we see that through groups like the Clapham sect, which was a collective of Christians in the UK who contributed to the abolition of slavery and the creation of the Humane Society for the Protection of Animals and a lot of other amazing generative expressions. Artistically, there have been incredible uh, collectives as well, and Gertrude Stein comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, just a woman in, in Europe who hosted artist salons where she invited all the yeah. greatest artistic thinkers and they talked. So there's a cross-pollination of ideas and accountability that come just as a byproduct of living in an artistic community that I feel like are incredibly generative and I recommend to anyone. That's one thing. I mean, New York, although it's a city of 8 million people, it's, it can be incredibly isolating and having a practical community that you can be a part of protects against, you know, something that artists often, I think, fall prey to, which is mental illness or, you know, you wonder why so many of the greatest artists of our modern history have had mental issues. And I think a lot of it is just not being a part of community and being a part of being accountable to others. Yeah, there's a lot of things about it that I find constructive, although it may not be for everyone. Well, tell me some of the projects that you, you feel the most proud of, artists you've worked with, things you've done. What do you point to and say, man, I, I love that I did this? Probably the greatest response to anything that I've ever worked on has come through my work with an artist named Josh Garrels. Mm. Interestingly enough, he's also a Christian, although most of my collaborators through Mason Jar Music and my clients are not Christians. The work that we did with Josh, I was introduced to him by a friend a while back when I was still in college, and I was really captivated by his voice, so I sent him a message and said, hey, if you fly yourself to New York, I'd be willing to work for free to produce some content around your music. And specifically, we had a vision for doing a reinterpreting one of his existing songs for a new orchestration and doing a video of it. Mm. At the time, he was intrigued and decided to take a risk and he flew out. We made our first piece of work together. And that was the first thing that I ever worked on that received a strong response from mm. people. And it was really incredible. Like, you know, people were writing in and saying things like, this video changed my life and th- crazy things that I was like, really? It's just. Mm. Uh, it's just some music, man. But of course, you know, it was never just music for me uh, growing up. And so happy to be a part of that continued lineage. But through that project, 
we had a, a patron reach out to us and say, I'd like to fund more work with you wow. and Josh Garrels, with Mason Jar Music and Josh Garrels. So we ended up flying to this guy's island and we made a, a whole movie, a feature length film kind of about Josh's work, about our work, and then showing the collaborative process of us working on music and then its completion and presentation. That's great. And that film, that was 2012 that I, that was released, I think, and never seen a response as great mm. to anything that I've worked on. It's, mm. It seems to have really moved people. So I'm just thankful that, that I was a part of it. And so that's like some kind of historical stuff. Recently got to contribute to the new Fleet Foxes record, which has been one of my favorite bands. The year that I moved to New York was the year that their big record hit uh, mm. for the first time. And so it was a soundtrack for me to just a lot, of, a big transitional phase and it just become really meaningful for me. And so to get to collaborate with them last December was kind of like a, life moment. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So sure. that's, that's a fun one. I mean, there, we've worked with a bunch of big clients, other people that have been my musical heroes and that's been pretty awesome. But a lot of times it's kind of just the small joys that I like and things that may never be expressed, things that are more process related that, mm -hmm. that someone may not appreciate when the music is released. You mentioned that most of the, your clients aren't Christians. Has being a person of faith caused you any difficulties or created any conflicts? With folks? You know, the only conflict it's created is that Christians always want to call Mason Jar Music a Christian organization. And that's created some conflict with my collaborators who don't share my faith. Like it's made it so that I'm really sensitive about ever speaking on behalf of Mason Jar Music as if it were a Christian outfit because sure. I can only speak for myself. And other people have similar but different motivations for the things that they do. People presuming that that what we do is Christian. People email us all the time and say like, oh man, your work's been so amazing for my faith and I pray for you guys and things like that. And, so, you know, I remember Dan coming to me and being like, I wonder if they know that an atheist Jew is the one that's receiving this email. And uh, <laughs> so I, I, uh, I, I think that's the main conflict that it's caused. I think for me personally, it's been the most constructive thing that could have happened for my faith because, again, it's forced me to understand my faith in an exilic context and also to be able to communicate it to people who don't share the same views in a way that they can understand and hopefully even relate to. I think those things have been constructive, but yeah, there may have been some growing pains along the way. Nothing too crazy, but you know, just things that you have to navigate. You've been doing this for a while. I think a lot of our audience are either young creatives trying to find their way or people who are in a season of like in a season of life the the way the economy has shifted you know people change are changing jobs constantly and there's a lot of folks who kind of have in the back of their head like I want to be an artist I want to do creative work and trying to find their way into that I'd want to know like what's your counsel to somebody who's trying to sort of reckon with like I want to live a creative life or I want to be a musician or what have you learned along the way that maybe you would say to yourself when you were showing up at NYU with, with this kind of stuff in mind? Well, first of all, I believe that everyone should be pursuing a creative life and everyone has the capacity to be an artist in one way or another. Mm. I feel like that's just an endowment that we're gifted with as humans that some people 
are trained to express and some people are given confidence that they can express it mm. and other people aren't unfortunately and so we get this dichotomy in people's minds of like the artist class and the non-artist class right. i don't really feel like that's an idea worth buying into but i also don't think that being a creative professional is for everyone in the sense that it's mm -hmm. it's a service that you can exchange for money some of my favorite artistic expressions are communal expressions. And again, this goes back to my tribal history. For almost all of history, there have been no such thing as a professional musician or a professional artist. Right. Those things were just things that people did in community to express joy or grief or try to bond communally in a way that wasn't possible or as easy in other ways. I think those are the truest forms of art. And that's kind of what inspires me and in, in the energy that I try to bring to the work that I'm doing. My favorite responses that I've ever gotten to work that I've done is people emailing us and saying, hey, your work inspired me to get out the cello that's been in my closet for 20 years and now I'm playing again. Mm. Or I just finished a song that I started writing two years ago. I thought I would never finish because I was so discouraged, but just, mm. you know, the work that you've done has helped me to gain confidence. I, I'm honored by that. And that's, mm. if there's one thing that I could, that I could hope for my work and my music is that that more people would feel that way. We have had all, some other people that have said, hey, I quit my job to pursue music or, hey, I dropped out of school to, to do this. And then that's why I start to feel really guilty because I'm like, it's unlikely that there is a practical avenue for you to do this professionally. I've been able to do it and have been incredibly fortunate. And unfortunately, that's just not the case for a lot of people. But I don't think that that's like, a, should be considered a, an expression of failure um, I think it's just where we're at right now in history, which is really in line with a lot, most of history. Yeah. Um, there was kind of a beautiful spring and summer in the 90s and, uh, you know, maybe from the 50s to the 90s where being a professional musician was a lot more possible. And um, But we're not in that anymore. So I would encourage people to invest in their creativity and maybe, you know, maybe an outpouring of that will be that there's a way for them to exchange that to make a living. But I can't in good conscience <laughs> encourage anyone to do that. Now first he sings and then he goes and what it means it's hard to know. Hey, go check out masonjarmusic.com and look at all the cool, unique stuff that Jonathan's working on. Our show today was produced by me. It was edited by TJ Hester. It was recorded by Jonathan Seal at his studio in Brooklyn. It was mixed by Mark Owens. Our soundtrack was by Roman Candle and Dan Phelps, and our theme song is by Roman Candle. Special thanks to Isaac Wardell. If you've never checked out our website, go to cultivatedpodcast.com and look at what we've got there. See pictures, read transcripts, find links, and more. Speaking of which, someone we owe a big thank you to is Brennan McAllister. He's built our site, does a ton of helpful work behind the scenes, and he's been incredibly supportive from the very beginning. So thanks, Brennan, for all that you do. We'll be back next week. See you then. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.